I, however, was increasingly keen to hear more, to understand more, because you are your parents. That's just a biological fact, you are. So the things that course through you, course through them. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. Joining me in conversation, award-winning author Charles Foran. Thanks for making the time. Pleasure, Dave. At what point uh, did you decide that you were going to embark on writing something so personal, uh, which is your uh, most recent book, Just Wants No More? It's about four years ago when, as I was watching my father's life wind down, and there was no, there was no tragedy in it. He was in his 80s, and he'd had a long pretty good life. But I, um, I was looking for a way of registering how it was impacting my own thinking about being a middle-aged male and, and how I was myself experiencing a, a sort of fluctuation in, in emotional um, temperament, I'd say, and was starting to feel things I hadn't felt or hadn't allowed myself to feel around age and mortality and friendship and loss and sadness and all those sorts of eternal complexities that come with being a human. And I um, decided I needed a form to match that and even a voice to match that. I had uh, operated up until that moment throughout my career in the first, my first 11 books, I'd say broadly in a kind of ironic mode, which is how most sophisticated writing is done you know there's an irony there you're 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 distanced you're you're kind of winking at the reader that you're displaying your your edge and i didn't think that was the right way to write about these things that were so close as you say so i almost had to strip my toolkit and build it again to write this book which is why it took four years even though it's short and this was one of the more challenging experiences that you walked through in your life would that be fair to say if it was challenging more challenging than other things i've done in my life it was only because i uh i felt it differently i explore in the book how i think we shift in our understandings of ourselves in in ourselves i think the self is an unstable Hmm. entity so if my father died when i was 20 if i had for some reason experienced a a sort of tiny crisis of meaning or whatever you want to call it that I outline in chapter two, where I list those things that older people struggle with. If that had happened for some reason when I was in my twenties, I don't think I, I think I would have blown right by. I was very outwardly facing as a young author. I was interested in the world. I was interested in politics. I was interested in travel. I was interested in books. You know, my early books are nonfiction set in Northern Ireland and China. And my early novels were very uh, intrepid and peripatetic, like they were set in those places. So I think I would have missed this one. I think I had to be a certain age and in a certain place to even realize that this material was both the right material and something I could write about. And I say that with some mixed feelings, because I, I do think the best writers are usually they deep dive into the same things over and over, the same preoccupations, the same itches they have to scratch. So I, I'm a little uh, sheepish that I've only come to these things in my late 50s, but that's true. So I don't think there was nothing particularly challenging. Uh, every every person's 
father and mother die, right? Yeah. Um, and as I say, <clears throat> if it had happened when I was younger, I, I probably wouldn't have done anything with the material. So it, it was just one of those coming togethers of inclination, time, subject, and maybe a, a sense that you're too young to perhaps have reckoned with that there's a lot more of your life behind you than in front of you. So make haste, you know, say what you need to say. The thing that the, I report the doctor saying to my, you know, to us in my father's final hours, you know, say what you need to say now. That's sort of how I felt about the book. So as you're uh, grieving uh, or beginning to grieve, what, what is to come with your, with your dad, Dave, um, how are how are you uh, able to look back at what is behind you through the filter of of the relationship you had with them? What are you What are you learning? It's something all adults reckon with, which is that their parents are mysteries, and you think you know them because you've been raised by them, you've been in a house with them, but they're mysteries, and they're mysteries because all humans are mysteries to each other. And sometimes, if not all, mostly to ourselves. As my father's final years, it became apparent my father's, the end was coming. And he had a really uh, difficult, and we would now say traumatizing childhood. And it had made him the man who had I had known all my life. But he never really shared it. He just cut it off. So I hadn't had... We hadn't had grandparents and we hadn't had extended family. He just cut it off and shut it down. And, and then towards the end, he was naturally uh, thinking more about it and was willing to talk about it a bit. I, however, was increasingly keen to hear more, to understand more. Because you are your parents. That's just a biological fact. You are so the things that course through you course through them. I opened the book with, you know, this sort of primal in, um, scene of my father shooting a bear in the bush of northern Ontario that he ran into in a, on a path to emphasize that what course through him probably courses through me as well. And these are these primordial qualities to uh, human beings, which is you don't know them, though, if you don't know your parents. And so because there were so many gaps, I started sort of interrogating him. And those chapters at the beginning, Dave, before his death, are not meant to be necessarily uh, flattering to me because I was pushing a, you know, a, a sick older man who would sort of suggest he wanted to share things. He would drop comments in a prismatic kind of way. You know, my, my parents never loved me. I don't have any friends. I don't like people. You can't trust me. He would drop these sentences, which seemed to be sort of openings, but they weren't. They were just his mind, the things that had, that had been on his mind for 80 years coming up. But I was chasing them, and I was chasing them because I wanted to understand why he'd been the way he was, why he'd been the father, why he'd been the husband, why he'd been that man. It's not uncommon. Since the book was published, I probably had two dozen conversations with people who had read it and who said, oh, I, that was, I, I had the same thing with my dad. I, at the end, I, I actually talked to someone who's having those conversations right now with his father, who's in his father's in his final you know, months or whatever, weeks. So it's a very common experience to want that. 
and to seek it. How it goes is various, of course. And uh, what were you feeling during this this time as you're having these conversations with your father? The usual uh, good and positive and negative flattering and unflattering things. I was feeling uh, compassionate, tenderness. I was feeling impatience. I was frustrated. The moment, I think, that sort of crystallizes the complexity of those encounters and those feelings is he'd had a sister, and uh, he'd been estranged from her as well. And and she was a woman named uh, Barb, our Aunt Barb, and she had she looked remarkably like him. But we didn't see her much for like the last, since we were kids, we hadn't really seen her. And uh, and I'd always say, how's Aunt Barb? How's Aunt Barb? And uh, he'd say, oh, I don't, know. I don't talk to her. We're not that close. Anyways, in the final weeks of his life, we learned that she had died weeks before. And uh, wow, he hadn't even told us. He hadn't even considered going to the funeral. I don't think he'd known until after. And and that just sort of, what that felt like to me was sort of like a, a bowl has been dropped on the ground and it's now shattered completely. But then why would I make it worse by kind of pushing him in that scene and whatever that chapter is, I push him on that. You know, why didn't you tell us that your sister was dead? Why weren't you closer to your sister either? Um, it, so it's, but it's, 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 I, I share it with readers because it's, it's human. We we're always trying to position ourselves to understand these things naturally, but people necessarily aren't, don't understand it themselves. I, if my father, I think he does say something like, I don't know, you know, I don't know, I don't know, but he's on his way out. He's 80 something. If you're younger, you, you think, Maybe maybe knowing this is going to help me moving forward. I don't necessarily think it does, Dave. But mm. th- those are the the book is asks a whole bunch of questions about getting older and being human and negotiating friendship, negotiating mortality, negotiating the self, negotiating illness. It doesn't answer and have any answers. I'm all about the questions. Mm, I like it. And and speaking of questions, you use the philosopher Augustine to help shape questions you ask about yourself internally. Why, why don't we go there? I quote Augustine in that chapter, which is about my mind as I get older, which is I'm finding myself increasingly comfortable floating around in my thoughts and where they move. And, and Augustine was just talking about the lack of self-awareness. Augustine was what I found startling about Augustine, and it's true of many great thinkers, however far in the past they were, you know, he was so, he, they're talking about the same challenges, the same complexities, the same oddities. You know, he says in the Confessions that, you know, it's easier to count the hairs on a man's head than to, to appreciate his feelings or the movements of his heart or the various forces at play in his soul. Like we, he's saying, we don't understand, we don't know ourselves. How can we not know ourselves? And then he also says, you know, humans, and this is true, and this is very true of me, wonder at the heights of mountains, at the huge waves of the sea. But then they pass by themselves without wondering. They pass by themselves without wondering. I'm really hoping my book is, is, is where I'm not passing by myself without wondering. I'm stopping and saying, okay, what, why this? Why that? Why these occup- preoccupations? Why these thoughts? Why these churnings? Why these um, why this sadness? The book is rooted in a long, long tradition of these kinds of books, going right back to the Stoics, you know, to Seneca, Seneca and uh, Marcus Aurelius, and all the way through to Annie Dillard or something. I I love that kind of writing where it's uh, 
it's taking its time, it's moving this way and that, but its destination is uh, clarity, I guess. Hmm. Clarity of the questions, Dave, not the answers. And as you're confronting your father's life with your own life, and you're, you're turning inward more, you do allude that there's some significant differences between the way that you were wired and the way that your, your father was wired, but how did the way that those kind of bristled against each other give you more insight to maybe the way that you would have reacted to him when you were younger and so forth? It's a really good question. Because I, the insight that I, into my father that I, I think I, now, uh, I share twice, I make twice in different contexts, is that, is that he felt unloved as a boy. That he had been so wounded by a, a loveless childhood that as an adult he proceeded with a sort of instinctive caution, almost fear of fellow humans. And I had none of that. I was loved. I don't know if it's just that, but I was loved as a child. And I, I'm i trying to find the passage now and I can't, but I, I, I think I say at one point that um, I think that I have a, a much more comfort with other people and loving people and loving life because I have felt secure. I felt embraced, and he didn't. That understanding of him came very late. I think I do say, even in the first chapter, let me see if I can find it, because it was, it was, it's cogent. Um, with, right. It took me nearly 40 years to read in his gaze uncertainty about being loved rather than anger at being alive, and to accord the gentleness beneath his bluster, the stat- stature of bravery given that bad hand. So it's true. That's absolutely true. It took me 40 years to read in his gaze, my father's gaze, uncertainty about being loved rather than anger being alive. I I don't think he ever was convinced, even though my mother would loved him un- unconditionally. He just wasn't sure. That's I think that's the legacy of a, of a messed up childhood. And, and your uh, analysis of this is so helpful because, as you say, this is... Uh, bringing about some pognate universality because we all do sort of experience this and we don't do the deep work of understanding why someone might react the way that they do. Uh, we just take it at face value and and uh, it ruffles our feathers. It, it's very true. <clears throat> I mean, the beginning of wisdom is taking a breath in front of everyone who you meet and saying, if you can, why are they like that what's going on where are they coming from what's their perspective what have been their experiences especially if they say you know if, if, the, if the confrontation or the exchanges are complicated and maybe uh, fraught why are they saying that but it that kind of wisdom is hard to maintain because we're emotional animals and um, we get our backs up and we get offended and we get we have our own needs. You know, there's neediness everywhere. It doesn't matter how old, what age you are. But wisdom comes when you can just say, pause, 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 and say, uh, oh, I wonder why she thinks that. Or what happened to them to make them believe this or say this? It doesn't necessarily alter you know, how you're ne- going to get on, but each and every human being is a, a singular and singularly formed creature. And we may all be full of cliches, but we're also full of unique uh, markings. 
things that have made us who we are and uh, all deserving of compassion and understanding. It's better to be in a house of mourning than in a house of feasting. Hmm. Uh, What's that mean? Well, I think what it means is that only in times of, of death do we really examine what that person was all about. Whereas in the middle, middle of a celebration, uh, we, we, it's almost like what you said earlier. I, I think it's like the, our younger selves where uh, we just absorb things rather uncritically. We just kind of get caught up in the party. But when we're, when we're faced with death, we have to confront the reality of what we're, what we're facing. I think there can be great learning there. Yeah. Yeah. That, that sounds right to me now that you explain it. Uh, I mean, a sort of literary or storytelling version of that is, you know, the, the ha- stories about happiness are boring. There's, mm. You can't do much with that stuff. Stories of sorrow or mourning or complexity or ambiguity are where the, the good narratives lie. I think that's a bit glib because joy is, is, a, is, a, is a wondrous state. Yeah. And it is well worth aspiring to and declaring and and naming but it's true that dwelling in the house of mourning is where the meaning lies it's so hard to to live with this but it's so true human beings whatever wherever you sit on the spectrum of uh how sentient the rest of the world is whether you know animals have interior lives and plants and all that stuff that we're addressing now and thinking about more and more i am pretty sure that Humans are the only creatures on the planet Earth that engage in metacognition. We're the only ones who think about thinking about ourselves. We're thinking about thinking about ourselves. So our stories are what we do to tell ourselves that we're doing these things. There's there's this ferocious self-awareness. It's debilitating. It's overwhelming. um, It's constant. It's what keeps us awake at night creates angst, anguish and uh, all these com- emotions because we're we're so self-aware. Mm. We're thinking about ourselves, thinking about ourselves. So we're not just living stories, we're telling stories about the stories that we're in. So it's just bound to be the case that with 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 that kind of relentless attention to being alive, we're going to end up thinking about not being alive, about the end, about illness, about pain, about loss. It all kind of makes sense. It's just you don't want to engage with it a lot because it's uh, it's heavy stuff. But yeah, it it's, really it's, it's, it's what we are. It's what we are. I am pretty sure the squirrels outside my window, they may have interior lives, but I don't think they're thinking about being squirrels. We are thinking about being ourselves all the time. Blessing and a curse. Blessing and a curse. Yes. It's led us in a certain direction as a species. And that is perhaps proving to be an unhelpful direction, which is this sense that we were at the center of the planet, that we are somehow chosen. Don't think any of that's true. But it's certainly unique and singular. It's made us very, very potent as a species because we we act collectively with great force sometimes. Time is flying by in, in the conversation, but I just wanted to end on a couple things to get your, get your thoughts on. 
the first being you alluded to ailments that you've experienced in your life, if you could speak to. And then in relation, I just wonder if you think there's some uniqueness to, particularly for you as a man and your father as a man, that sort of relationship of understanding who you are, what are you learning? Okay, sure. Well, uh, the first thing, right. So at the end of the book, the sort of circle of the book, the narrative circle is is that my father gets ill, he dies in the middle. And then the second half of the book is the 12 months after his death. And at the end of those 12 months, almost to the day, I'm diagnosed with heart disease and I have five stents put in my heart. And the sort of, so that's the circle of the book the arc of it, if you will, from illness to death to illness. So fragility running through. Nothing, you know, catastrophic, but fragility. Then it so happens that this, in February of this year, I had a, a triple bypass. So that sort of took this all to another level. The stents didn't hold and my heart had to be repaired. So the book came out of a place of meditating on fragility to, uh, I suppose now it has a, uh, a kind of epilogue that's even more powerfully in that place. So to some extent, the way I'm thinking about the book, since it came out, the way I'm talking about the book now is even more informed by that stark, mm. un, you know, not very consoling fact that everybody is going to die. And I, and I am, and I've been, you know, kind of closer than I would like to be in the last couple of years. So there's that. The father-son stuff, if you're asking, is the bond perhaps unique, the same mother-daughter, father-son? Yeah, yeah. I'm guessing yes. I, I raised two daughters with my wife. We raised two daughters. I believe I've had a, and continue to have a lovely and positive and good relationship with my daughters, but I suspect is not the one they've had with their mother. There's a sort of telepathy there. There's a sort of ferocious bonding between the mother and the daughter. And I think, you know, men, I was, my father was, we are mostly programmed to think that our life consists of executing certain tasks, fulfilling certain responsibilities, having a certain disposition, being in the world a certain way. And yes, you look to your father to model that. There's no question that Boys look to their dads for models. Of course we do. Between a father and a son, I do think there's a special relationship unique to the to the gender of it, the way there is with a mother and a daughter, and I watched that, observed that. With my wife and our daughters, um, you are looking, as a boy especially, for models to help you situate you in the world physically, emotionally, directionally, temperamentally and you of course your father is your first model not your only but your first with men maybe the generalization dave we've been is that it's harder because we're not that verbal often or not that good at our emotions and and certainly my book explores those challenges around expressing emotions even even in the 11th hour you know how hard it is for men certainly for me and my father it's how to some extent, we're wired as well. Fascinating. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Lots more we could get into, but recommend you pick up the book yourself. Just once, no more. We've been in conversation with author Charles Foran. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Good talking to you. 
Well, so interesting what Charles talked about in terms of being loved and seeing that his father hadn't maybe experienced this to the same degree that he had. And that really shifted the way that he looked at the world. Well, I think we can certainly say as Christians, this is our witness. Our witness is that we would be loving beings because we have experienced the love of God. Jesus really said you can only give what you have first received. This was his instruction to the disciples. And so we need to be people who have received not just love that uh, maybe someone has experienced in a, in a horizontal kind of way um, that's powerful and nice and kind, but in a transformational way that's unconditional, that comes from he who is love. And this uh, ought to impact any horizontal relationship that we're in. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Well, John Fraser, we had him on the show to talk about the death of the Queen. He's back. We're going to check in on the status of King Charles. He was at both the funeral and the coronation. So we're going to get his thoughts from the former head of Massey College and someone who has held this portfolio for decades across Canada. Charles is the first to have really sounded the alarms about climate change. He was the first big figure to announce the importance of indigenous voices in our thinking and the first to sound the alarm against mindless bits of architecture. Many of the things he warned about and that he was dismissed as a bit of a loon have all become commonly accepted now. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.